Hello, everyone. Before you listen to this week's episode, please be cautious as we will be discussing gun violence and other trauma. If you think that this information could be potentially triggering for you, please be aware of and nurturing to your mental and emotional well-being and listen at your own discretion. I am so excited to have this discussion with Noor Jahan, but I just want to remind you that none of what you are hearing today is an attempt to diagnose. It should also not be taken as a replacement for professional care or a reason to dismiss or delay it. If you are experiencing an emergency, please contact 911. You may also contact 1-877-SAM-HSA-7, which is 877-726-4727 for treatment referrals, or 877-273-TALK, which is 877-273-8255 for suicide prevention. Yeah, and whatever feels most comfortable for you, trust your intuition or trust your gut. And when you are ready, make sure that you're listening to it during a time where you can get support afterwards if you need to. The shift that I've experienced is learning to see those triggers as an opportunity to heal instead of as something that I need to hide from or run away from. Welcome to the Whiskey Lemon Podcast. I am your host, Alana Mercedes. And I'm your guest, Noor Jahan Bolden. Welcome to the show, Noor Jahan. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It has been a mission. I feel like our schedules have been so off. It's been so hard to get us both together. So I'm so glad we first we were able to do this. Absolutely. If you actually can start off just by telling the audience a little bit about yourself, um, you don't have to jump into like the full story if you don't want to just yet, but just kind of maybe something quick and then also something that maybe people don't know about you or would never guess about you. Ooh, okay. That's fun. Um, so I am, I'm a gun violence survivor, which a lot of people know, so that's not new. And um, I'm a writer and public speaker, community builder, Something that people don't know about me. Ooh. I picked that one know. because it's hard for me to answer. So I want to see how quick other people can answer. <laughs> oh man, it's so hard. But I, I this is this might be a cheat because some people already know this, but not everybody knows. Okay. That, you know, some people go on walks, some people go on runs. I go on dances. So I dance down. Oh, the I street. like it. <laughs> right? Okay. Dancing, so I like and there's it. another woman in the same town, city, whatever it is that I live in, and she does the same thing. And both of us bumped into each other one time, and we had a little dance party on the corner. It was kind of fun. So, is this dancing like subtle movements of the hands and legs, or is it like you're full on <laughs> cartwheels and like twerking mood. down the sidewalk? <laughs> <laughs> depends on my mood, honestly. Okay. I mean, I, it's not cartwheels, so there are no cartwheels happening, but it's enough dancing that I've had people who know me be like, I saw you dancing the other day. Is that part of your workout routine? Nice. I guess you could call it that. It's my happiness routine, but it works. Okay, so secret, I actually knew about that. And the twist at the end of the show is that we're going to have you do like a little dance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was like, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> Okay, so I want to jump right in because there's so much to discuss. And like you said, a lot of people already know that you are a gun violence survivor. But mm-hmm. I want to first know, uh, did you ever know of anyone that had gone through something like this before? I knew. So I was in college when I when I got shot. And 
I had a couple of friends in college who had lost loved ones to gun violence. Mm -hmm. My best friend's older sister had been shot on her way home from school when she was 14. And then another one of my friend's um, brother was killed over a video game dispute when he was in college. So I knew people who had lost other people to gun violence. I didn't know anyone who had been shot and survived. Okay. So all of all of them had passed. Yeah. Um, whew, already heavy. Okay. I so, know it's heavy. Look, we can do a little heavy, a little light. I like to flow yeah. down and in between. So don't worry about like, let's do it. From- <laughs> yeah. yeah. So set the scene for us back yeah. to when you were shot. Where were you? How old you were? How everything played out? Yeah. So before I was shot, I was I was a junior in college. I was a dancer. I taught belly dance on campus. I grew up belly dancing. It's one of my biggest passions. And um, I was also an adventurer. I loved traveling. I used to just buy a one-way ticket to a different country, not knowing where I was going to stay, what I was going to do when I got there. But I just bought the ticket, flew there, and figured things out when I got there. And it was so... It was amazing. I would work five jobs during college just to be able to take a trip somewhere. So that summer after my junior year, I uh, visited Morocco because it's where I had studied abroad Mm. and then went to New York for my cousin's wedding. And then I had another cousin that was getting married in Toronto and I didn't have to be, I didn't have to start work till Tuesday. So I got a plane ticket to Toronto, Canada from Thursday to Monday and then I was going to fly home and start working again for the summer and we went to this wedding over the weekend I went with my cousins met some new family friends my cousin Aisha and two family friends that we had met that weekend we were all in our 20s I was 21 they were around 25 we decided to go out that night because we had never been to Toronto before it was Sunday I was going to leave the next day And so we figured, let's just explore the city. And so I went, we were thinking, should we go salsa dancing? Should we go karaoke? And because it was a Sunday, nothing was really open. So we went to the only spot that we could find that was open that was a reggae place. It was a big nightclub, you know, dark on the outside with a long line outside. When you got inside, it was totally empty. And we went up to the rooftop and we were just up there sitting and talking and laughing And the whole club filled up. It had about 600 people there. And we were about to leave. It was, I want to say it was close to one or two in the morning. And we wanted to go get milkshakes. So we were about to leave. And all of a sudden, I felt this vibration in the bottom part of my body. And I don't know if everybody's like this. I've talked to a lot of gun violence survivors. Because I I worked with gun violence survivors for a while. And... Mm -hmm. For me and for a lot of other people, my whole body from the waist down went numb. So for a lot of people, the place where you get shot goes numb. It's not for everybody, obviously. Different people have, you know, their bodies have different reactions. But for me, it went numb and I fell on the ground and I knew that I had been shot, even though I hadn't heard any bullets. I got shot before I heard anything. But then there were bullets spraying. It was an assault rifle. So there were just bullets going everywhere. And I kept saying, get down, get down. I got shot. I didn't know where on my body had been shot. I didn't know if I was paralyzed. I didn't know if I was bleeding out. The man next to me was also um, shot. He was shot three times. And another man had been shot in the foot. 
And we stayed up there for 30 minutes waiting for the paramedics to come up because the, the what is it called? The SWAT team? The SWAT yeah. team had to clear the entire building before paramedics could get up to the rooftop to help carry us down. And by that time, the man next to me had died and they oh. carried me out. The other man who had been shot in the foot was a professional football player. Mm. And so his career, I don't, I didn't stay in touch with with him because you know we were just in the hospital at the same time yeah and we were both going through whatever we were going through in the moment I would imagine that his career was destroyed from it and when I came home you know I was in a wheelchair I couldn't walk I couldn't run I couldn't dance and went into my senior year like that do you feel like it was just a natural where you you two didn't keep in touch or was there some part of us keeping in contact kind of reminds us of what happened Oh, it was a, I didn't know it at the time. I would have been like, oh no, it was just, you know, we were busy. I was getting my, my legs sewn together and he was getting his foot reassembled. But I realized later, so about a year ago, I reconnected with one of the family friends that was, that was with me when I got shot. Mm. They were, it was my cousin and two family friends and none of us talked about it again. Obviously my cousin is my cousin and we're still cousins and we still talk about other things, but we had never talked about it again. And I realized when I reconnected with one of them that I had been absolutely avoiding it. The just talking to her made me feel, it just reminded me because it was a night. So bringing you into the moment, really, it was a night where we were four young women talking about dating, talking about college majors and careers like we were we were just connecting and laughing and I felt like we were going to be lifelong friends it was it felt like that genuine of a connection and then all of a sudden in the middle of everything it just feels like our whole lives got blown up for me it felt like my whole life got blown up you know everything that I thought I could do with my life was was ripped out from under me I thought I was going to be a dancer and all of a sudden I couldn't, it was, I was rolling into my senior year of college, you know, I didn't know what I could do after that. And, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth about whether it was the injury that stopped me from dancing or whether it was the emotional trauma and the fear of trying again, because I did dance for a little bit after I recovered. And then my, my leg um, started to deteriorate and I started walking with a cane on and off throughout my twenties until I got more surgery on my leg. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a lot of fears that were weighing down on me and my whole world was just closing in because I was scared for my life everywhere I went. I just kept thinking it could happen again. And your cousin that you just reconnected with, she was also shot or she was just there that night? So my cousin and my two family friends were just there that night. Got it. Okay. And they had their own trauma. You know, being there, Yeah. this is something that people don't realize, being in connection to a shooting in any way, whether you lost a loved one whether you were physically there when it happened, whether, I mean, I've talked to survivors who didn't go to school that day. They cut class that day. There was a shooting and they still hold all that trauma because they could have been there, you know? So everybody reacts to things differently. And it's important to give yourself permission to call yourself a survivor. If you've experienced something that feels traumatizing to you even if you weren't the one that got shot. For me, I didn't let myself feel it because I wasn't the one who got killed. I was like, mine was nothing. I didn't die. Mm. So I don't deserve healing. I don't deserve 
compassion. I don't deserve to be, to call myself a survivor. So I didn't, I didn't think I deserved any of that stuff for 10 years after my shooting. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I hear that a lot too, from people where it's, you know, well, this person lost their life or well, this person, you know, is completely paralyzed from here. Like you do that comparison and it's, I think it's like a lot of people are saying like toxic positivity too, where it's, you know, you have that grass is always greener on the other side kind of thing, but then you're not allowing yourself to grieve at the same time, right? You're always like, well, someone else has it worse. So I'm not allowed to feel what I'm feeling right now. Right. And it doesn't make any sense, but it's also what we're taught constantly. How many parents tell their children, you think what you have is bad. Let me tell you about the people that have to deal with this. Right. Or, you know, you really are blessed when it comes down. So many people after I got shot looked at me in a wheelchair and were like, you're really blessed. And I get it. So there are two different perspectives, right? There's the perspective of, wow, what a blessing that you know, it came this came within, I don't know how to describe this amount of distance, but a t- it was right next to my artery. And if it had hit my artery, I would have bled out and died. Okay. And I met a survivor whose brother got shot in the same leg and it hit his artery and his brother died. And that was really triggering for me because it is your, it is a blessing that I got shot where I got shot. And then it's also like, it doesn't feel like a blessing to get shot. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It you feels so bad. Something. Right. Yeah, there's like, so there's, there's gotta be a bat. Yeah, exactly. There's gotta be this balance of this happened to you. You're allowed to feel that right now because it's traumatizing, like you said, yes. but then, you know, it's not that people are having this ill intention. They want you to like be happy and they don't want you to feel depressed, but also it's, exactly. it's for the victim. It's kind of like, are you telling me like, I don't have a right to feel like I just got shot in the leg. I'm, I'm allowed to feel like I'm not blessed in this moment, you know? Right. So yeah. I and yeah. I think you can hold you for me. I had to go into that dark place of actually, I'm really angry. I'm not feeling blessed. I'm feeling furious. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling empty. I'm feeling broken. I had to go there all the way in order to come to gratitude because without going there, I wasn't acknowledging the pain. And I did it for so long. I walked around with a smile on my face. I pushed down all the feelings. I was like, yep, everything's great. I'm not letting this stop me. I went through my senior year. I went through literally 10 years of pretending everything was totally fine when I was extremely depressed. And I had reels in my head over and over again of that night. Every time I took a shower, I would be thinking, I would see the man lying next to me dying on the ground. Every time I drove in my car, it was almost like I did my best to find all the distractions I could so that I was never resting. I was never sitting quietly because if I ever sat quietly without stuffing my face with food, without turning on the TV, without scrolling through my phone, without like blasting music, then my mind would go there. And that's yeah. what we do a lot of time when we're traumatized. We try really hard to distract us. Yeah. We try to do it when we're stressed out about an assignment that's due next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think about how hard you have to go when you're trying to block out an entire shooting. I think about, 
in college if there's you know yeah. say a girl that got dumped and the first first thing yeah. a lot of the time it's like let's go out ice to cream. clubs and get <laughs> yeah. well I was thinking that yeah like go out to the clubs and get drunk I don't want to think about yeah. it but then what happens all you're doing is thinking about it you're crying you want to text the person then you get back home you're sobering up you're crying more it doesn't change anything <laughs> trying to avoid like, it yeah go through it like feel it don't try to go around it right yes Yes. And I also, so I believe in radical acceptance of whatever you're choosing to do in the moment. So look, if you're choosing to go out to the club and do whatever, don't feel guilty about it because guilt only piles more emotions onto already emotional state, right? Mm -hmm. Do what you need to do, but remind yourself that until you face it, until you sit in stillness and actually are willing to confront whatever fear or whatever sadness or whatever anger, whatever feelings are coming up for you, until you do that, you're going to have to keep running from it and running from it yeah. works until it doesn't. It works until you break down. It works until you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and everything just kind of crumbles. It's, it's fine. If that's what you've been doing, you don't need to feel bad about it. And also this is your permission to pause, to face it right. and to heal it and to get the help that you deserve. Yeah. Because if you're running from it, and you're holding in your emotions saying, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. You're not, you're not doing that. Right. It's like too bad. Oh, things. Yeah. Oh, it's a recipe yeah. for disaster. Trust me. I tried to do that so many times. It ended up being panic attacks, it's a car backfired and I'd run screaming, oh. crying. You know, yeah. I had, I, I, I had mean, these- I do that now. So I can only <laughs> yeah. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you, and when you keep holding it down, there are all these triggers, your triggers are just building on top of each other. And it it got to the point for me, it started feeling like I can't feel anything because if I feel anything, it's going to be like a dam breaking and it's going to be a waterfall. I don't know when it'll stop. And that to me was the scariest thing. I don't know if I have any of my, anyone in my life who will hold me while I break all the way and maybe never come back together. I don't know what it looks like on the other side. And that fear stopped me from, from getting the help that I needed. Real quick too, you mentioned that you felt this vibration and you went yeah. numb. So yeah. I don't know if a lot of people have thought this way. Um, I've never been shot. So this is just how I, I thought that it would be this like sharp, crazy, what? intense pain. Yeah, it, me too. You know why we think that is because on TV, somebody gets shot and they're like, oh, oh. <laughs> and honestly, every right. time I see that, I'm like, that's not it. What I actually think is more, and again, everybody reacts differently. So maybe for some people, it really is like that. Yeah. But the most realistic thing, and I, this may be triggering, it was really triggering for me, but it was, it was a trigger that showed me what, what really, what the real experience of being shot was. It was that show, is it called Atlanta? Is that the name of the show? I don't remember the name of the show. Okay, I wouldn't even try to forget. But it was this moment where this girl is in the back of a car and she gets shot in the head and she comes out of the car and walks. And then all of a sudden she touches her head and looks and starts screaming because she realizes what happened. And I think that's more realistic because I didn't feel anything I knew that something had happened. And once I heard the bullets, I knew that it was a shooting. But the truth was, I would have totally expected it to be this sharp stabbing pain. Like it shattered my entire tibia. It ripped oh, through man. my whole leg. Yeah. And 
I didn't feel it at all. It felt like absolutely nothing. So I was in shock. And I think most people, a lot of people go into shock when they get shot and don't necessarily know how to come out of that shock. I, I didn't come out of that shock for a really long time. I only came out of that shock in spurts whenever I would have a panic attack or a breakdown because I was triggered again. Otherwise I would stay in that denial of what had happened. Yeah, At least in the mind denial. You had also mentioned, and I mean, I'm sure these thoughts might've gone through your head, but I didn't really hear you mention like, am I gonna survive? You just said, I'm in school. What am I gonna do now? Like, I like to dance. Like, what were your, was that really just like your initial thoughts? When I was laying on the ground, my thoughts were like this, right? It was first, I was like, oh my goodness, am I ever going to be able to dance again? Am I ever going to be able to run again? Am I ever going to be able to walk again? And then I started wondering, am I, am I even going to survive this? And at one point, and I decided to pray and I wasn't praying for recovery. I was doing the prayer so I'm Muslim and the prayer that we're supposed to do before we die is Shahada. It's a declaration of faith. Mm -hmm. And so I was praying, preparing myself to die. And then I asked if anyone had a phone and I called, my cousin didn't want me to call my mom because she was staying with her dad and she didn't want her dad to find out that we had gone out to a nightclub, which again, when you're, I know, but when you're in it, you don't really think about those things. Like my biggest regret was I, I ripped her pants because I was borrowing her pants that night and I had to cut them (laughs) off. And I was like, she's never going to forgive me. (laughs) But the things that you think about aren't necessarily realistic, right? So I called forcing yourself to go there. So you don't actually think about what's happening. Like maybe, right. You're trying to treat it like it's normal. Yeah. And I, so I ended up calling my dad who's in California, thousands of miles away. And he it was about 11 o'clock for him. And I told him, don't worry about it. I'm totally fine. I just wanted to let you know that I got shot and I'm, we're going to go to the hospital. I'll let you know when we get there. And when I was talking to him on the phone, I felt like I was, I was lying to him. I felt like I was trying to comfort him. Like I was trying to tell him it was going to be okay. Cause I knew that it wasn't. And I think that was the part where I just kind of let go and decided that it was okay if I died and because I did that when I was laying on the ground there I think it was really hard when I survived because I didn't know what to do with the fact that I'd survived I was ready to die I was okay with that but my mind didn't go to what life could be like if I survived it and so surviving felt it felt harder Mm -hmm. it's unfair to say that's unfair to say because I have been blessed with this amazing life since then and amazing life, especially after my recovery. Yeah. But in that moment, and after immediately afterwards, I didn't know what to do with the fact that I survived, it felt more painful to survive than it would have felt to die. And I had all these regrets about not being the one who died. I, I felt like I should have been the one who died. And I carried a lot of guilt around me around with me about having survived. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine. And you, you have two boys, three boys, three. Yeah. Two boys. <laughs> so at the time, I'm, what at the time you didn't have children. You said you were no children. Yep. Okay. I was 21 at the time, and I I met my husband a year after I did. I almost said a year after I died. <laughs> no. <laughs> I met my husband a year after I got shot and survived. And then um, we got married 
maybe a year and a half later. And I had my first child when I was 25. Okay. Okay. So I was going through all of that while I was, I was experiencing PTSD, but didn't have the words or the understanding to be able to diagnose it or know what to do with it. Just kept pushing it down, pushing it down. Okay. So you also said that you will, you know, jump if you hear a car backfire. Um, Are there other things that will trigger you? Are there just thoughts that run through your head? Like, what if this happens to me again? I don't want to go out in public. Like, how does that, how's that affecting you? Yeah. So though those things used to affect me, I mean, everywhere I went, everywhere I went, everything that I did, I actually, I realized that I was really healing because I had, you know, after 10 years of suffering, really suffering, I met a, um, an amazing woman who was also a survivor. Mm-hmm. She lost her, her eight-year-old to gun violence um, back in 1992, I want to say. And she's been doing incredible work with survivors since then. I might have gotten everything about that wrong. And I feel really bad about that. It might have been in 1997. But I, she's, she's an incredible human being. Yeah. Um, and she, her name is Rhonda Foster. She does work with, with former gang members. She does work with current survivors. Mm-hmm. And when I met her, she was telling her story about um, driving, trying to drive away from oncoming gun violence from a park and realizing that her son had been shot. And she tells her story with so much love and presence and while there's so much pain in it, she's also living so fully in her life. When I heard her speak 10 years after my shooting, I was so moved and so in awe of her courage that I went up to her and I told her, look, I don't know. I know my experience is really different from yours. I can't even imagine what you've gone through. I've also experienced gun violence. This is what happened to me. And I just wanted to let you know that it really meant a lot to me to mm-hmm. hear your story. And when I told her that, she she said, oh, we're looking for a survivor to come speak at an event. We'd love to have you speak. And I was like, oh, no, but I'm, I'm not a survivor. I'm just, I just got shot. Mm-hmm. You know, and she was like, yes, you are a survivor. And she told it, she kept kind of bringing it home for me and reminding me, you are a survivor and we would love to have you speak. So I shared my story publicly for the first time. I want to say it was 2000 in 2016. And that for me opened up so much. It, it made me realize that I deserved to recover, that I didn't have to live like this. I didn't have to live in fear constantly. Mm -hmm. And so I started reaching out for help and started going through all of these different processes and learning somatic healing techniques and learning how to address the fear in my body when it came up, learning how to be in a public space without and retrain my mind to think through all of those, instead of thinking through all of the different ways that bad things could happen, Mm -hmm. retrain my mind to, okay, if something bad were to happen, let me come up with an escape plan. Let myself do that so that I can kind of calm down from there. And once I've come up with an escape plan, address the emotions that are coming up for me so I can just enjoy myself for the rest of the time. 
So even though I used to feel anxiety everywhere that I went, whether it was to the store or to work or dropping my kids off at school, I started processing all of that. And I've gotten to the point where I can go anywhere and not experience any kind of PTSD symptoms. I can even hear, (laughs) I knew that I had really healed when I heard, I don't know, it was a car backfiring or some really loud noise that sounded like bullets and other people ducked. And I was like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Still duck, but I didn't get physically triggered. Yeah. And that was huge for me. So, you know, it's an ongoing process. I don't think you're ever like, ah, that experience is completely released from me. I have no connection to it. I still have, I still find triggers sometimes. I still have a connection to it. Whenever there's a new shooting, I find myself, you know, having things come up that are, that I haven't even thought about before that are unique Mm -hmm. to that shooting. But I've, the shift that I've experienced is learning to see those triggers as an opportunity to heal okay. instead of as something that I need to hide from or run away from. Yeah. Like not, not something that's then making you feel like, okay, none of this work that I did actually worked. It's just something that happened and it's going to teach you something. It's just something new. Yep. And yeah. it's another thing that I can learn from and grow from and expand from. Because if I get a trigger, if something triggers me, it means that I've had that emotion inside of me. Mm-hmm. That emotion's been triggered. And now I can either choose to push it down and pretend it's not there until it gets triggered again, yeah. or I can choose to actually work through it in the moment. Do you feel like, because in any anything that we do, right, it, it takes like consistency, repetitiveness, like you're having to practice that. So if you told yourself, okay, I'm going into this place, what's my escape plan? I have that now and I'm going to put it, you know, off behind me so I can enjoy the night. Do you feel like you constantly had to tell yourself that and slowly do it until you were really able to put it behind you and not think about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had to do it in almost every space that I was for a while. And I actually came up with a process to be, to make it so that I could go through these steps and then I was going to be okay. And I thought I was going to have to do that forever. And I was okay with that because doing that forever was better than just constantly living in fear and not being able to enjoy the concert I was at or the party I was at or wherever I was. Right. Um, and then, you know, I started to realize, oh, my mind didn't even go there. It just wasn't, I wasn't living in fear anymore. And there are things. So one time I was driving home with all my kids in my car and somebody pulled up next to us on the freeway. We were in the, they were in the carpool lane. We were in the fast lane mm-hmm. and they pulled up and I heard big bangs on the side of my, my passenger door. And that's where my, I think he was two at the time, but he's, he's my four-year-old now, but he's my little baby mm-hmm. was sitting. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Are you okay? Is everybody okay? Is And he wouldn't answer me. And so my mind was like, <gasps> What's happening? And your mind can move so quickly. It can go to the worst places so fast. And then I looked in the rear view mirror and could see something red on the outside of the car. So I freaked out my, but because I had these tools to work through things, like I, I learned how to calm myself in the moment when something comes up, when anxiety comes up. Mm -hmm. So I don't just lose control. You know, I've, I, when I was in my worst state and I got triggered, I could lose control of my car. Cause I was like, I just, I couldn't, couldn't center myself, but I was able to get myself off the freeway, get all of us off the freeway, get out of the car and check. And I don't know why he wasn't responding to me. Maybe he was shocked. I don't know what it was, but somebody had shot us with a paintball 
gun. And so they, and it was red paintballs. And I was like, oh, "Oh." but but on the freeway, right? Like I couldn't even get out and check on my kids. Yeah. But I was able to calm myself down after that. I had to take time for myself. And also I had a hard time getting in the car and driving after that. I had to work through all of those feelings for a little, but now I get in the car and I'm fine. So it just, my biggest learning through my recovery was learning to be patient with myself when things came up and they didn't immediately resolve or I didn't I wasn't able to address them immediately and I kept feeling like oh here I am I'm back at ground zero you know I'm, I'm right back to where I started but the truth is every time a new trigger comes up it's not bringing you right back to the beginning you mm-hmm. all that healing that you've done is real it's just something new that's coming up mm-hmm. and it means you're peeling back another layer of the onion right you're just yeah one more layer that you don't have to hold on to anymore which like you said then you have those tools you've done the healing and now that those tools are there so when something new does come up you have that to help you yeah and when people can own their own healing process for me that was really empowering I needed to be able to have tools you know going I think going to get support from somebody is really important because with things like PTSD it's hard to to navigate through your own process when you're having a physical reaction in your body. And also there are going to be times that two in the morning where you read the wrong news article and all of a sudden you're triggered and you can't go to sleep. Right. So for me, having the tools to work through things on my own, that was really valuable and it continues to be really valuable for me. And what I love about it is that it's become this, this, kind of path of discovery for me where I get to figure out what works best for me. And I get to come up with my own ways of working through things, which feels really empowering. Which is important, right? Because when you talk to someone else, when you're going through these things, what works for you might not work for someone else, but you have to figure that out. You got to figure that out. And it's really, you have to build resilience in order to figure that out. You have to recognize Cause I went to people in those 10 years. It's not like I never tried to get help. I went to eight different counselors trying to get help, mm. but I never felt like I was in, I felt. So when you go through something really traumatizing, you can, can develop this need to control your environment. Right. And I needed to control my healing process and feeling like somebody else was doing it for me. Didn't feel safe for me. So I never mm. felt safe in that environment. I had to each time remind myself that it's okay if this one didn't work. It's okay if this time around I went to this person and it didn't feel right, I'm going to find the one that will. Everybody, 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 I believe can heal or recover from whatever it is that they've gone through. I believe that because I've met people who have been shot five times point blank and are quadriplegic and breathing through a tube in their neck and are living whole and beautiful, empowered lives. It's not about what, you, what you've been through and how serious or bad it is. It's about finding the thing that works for you or the things that work for you and the community support that works for you. And then using that, tapping into it to recover, recognizing that it's not a one, one size fits all kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel like that helped your, because I know you said it took like maybe 10 years before you you really started kind of opening up about that. Do you feel like that helped your confidence then talking to other people? Um, was it 
was it a journey of, okay, talking about this to other survivors is triggering for me, but I need this. What was that like? It was all of that. Yeah. So the first time I remember, so I, I did that speech that um, Rhonda had invited me to do. And it was in front of like 300 people. I climbed off stage and I looked up and they gave me a standing ovation. And it was an audience filled with some people, a lot of people were survivors. Some people were not survivors, but just having everybody there holding space for me and, and recognizing the pain that I had been through and not judging me the ways that I had judged myself in my head for so long, like yours isn't that bad. Everybody who lost somebody is going to think that you're that you're just taking up space, you know, they, they didn't judge me in those ways. They held that space. And that was so empowering for me. I broke down. I felt everything I felt held. And then after that, about a year later, when I was starting to try to like get out into the world and share my story and help and support other people, I did a Ted talk and I in the Ted talk, I was talking about the power of vulnerability and opening up about what you've experienced. Mm -hmm. And then I just, I showed, I said, this is what that looks like. And then I talked in graphic detail about my shooting and what I was going through in the moments. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing it, I got so triggered. My body was shaking. I was aching. My whole back hurt. I felt like I had just been in a car accident and I didn't know what it was. I was like, why does everything hurt right now? I finished my speech you know, people wanted to go out afterwards. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go home. I drove home. My whole body was hurting for the rest of the week. I just felt horrible. And I realized two things. One is I had dug into parts of my story that I had never shared before. And it was re-triggering for me. And then two is I had a huge vulnerability hangover, right? Whenever you, you're, you let yourself be really vulnerable in front of people, sometimes it can result in, in regret. Like, did I, should I have not done that? Did I look stupid? Did, were they judging me? Did and I share too I much? Have, right. All yeah. of those things. Right? Yeah. Because I was teaching and I was teaching about vulnerability. I started thinking, oh my goodness, did I just teach something horrible? Did I just tell everybody to do something that's going to make them feel as bad as I feel right now? And the truth is, yeah, I did teach something that's going to make them feel like they got hit by a truck potentially, right? But that's because it was triggering and I needed to be triggered to surface all of that, to be able to heal it. And what I hadn't learned by that point yet was how to heal it. All I learned was how to talk about it, how to open up really vulnerably, but I didn't learn how to address those emotions directly and work through them. So the next work that I did was I started hosting workshops for survivors and every time I hosted a workshop, I, I participated in the workshop and I, and I had it as a workshop that was in place for both vulnerability and for addressing the emotions that were coming up for all of us. Okay. So it became this beautiful kind of communal space where we all got to come together and heal together. And then I started going to conferences and workshops and getting cert- certified in different healing modalities, especially somatic healing. Um, so that I could address those things as they were coming up in myself and also reach out to others when I needed support. Yeah. You, you brought up a good point too, because you said, yeah, it's going to make them feel like they got hit by a truck, you know, but they kind of needed that. (laughs) A lot of times when we're going through things, we think if we're still hurting in the midst of the healing, it's not working. Like it's supposed to just be, you know, rainbows and butterflies because I'm healing. I should be feeling great every day or at least increasing how, you know, my happiness from then on out, you're going to have those waves or it's going to be like 
put you at rock bottom so you can deal with it, right? Yes. And I had to start being really conscious of the fact that every time I crack, every time a part of me cracks open, it is, it is actually an opening. I have to remind myself when I'm in it that this is an opening that's happening, that I'm going through this to get somewhere better on the other side. And it always is. I always end up better. Even when I feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, even when I'm in a storm that feels too deep. I had, um, I had a work situation where I had experienced sexual harassment at work mm-hmm. and tried reporting it and the, it wasn't dealt with well and then experienced continued harassment. And I, I, by that point, I had gone through a lot of my healing process and decided, you know what, I'm going to face this head on. I'm going to be direct about it. And I did, but it it wasn't one quick, like, let me just talk about it. And then it's all going to be over and better. It was a whole process going through the whole process of reporting sexual harassment is long and grueling and challenging oh my goodness and it (laughs) drags you through the mud right emotionally and I that experience I felt like there was no end I could not see the light at the end of the tunnel I thought am I just masochistic doing this what am I doing this but the only reason I did it was because well two things one is I was trying to stand in my power (laughs) so that was important yeah the other one was there were other young women that were working in the same place as me and I couldn't I knew I was going to leave that job but I couldn't leave it knowing that I was leaving them with something like that Mm -hmm. and so I went through all of it and while I was going through it I just kept reminding myself that I'm cracking something open and I'm going to be bigger I'm going to be braver I'm going to be stronger more courageous on the other side of this I'm going to be a different person and I felt like I was it was like a rebirth for me going through that process and being able to stand in it and heal everything that I was going through as Mm -hmm. it was happening Mm -hmm. it felt like rising into my power to some degree and if you had asked me halfway through that if I would come out better on the other side I'd have been like you know what I don't feel it right now, but I trust and believe it. My husband's Christian and his pastor said something that resonated so much with me right before I went through all that. He said, be grateful for how you feel on the other side of the storm before you even get there. So before you even get to that happy place where everything is resolved, start practicing gratitude in the middle of the storm. I'm so grateful that everything worked out in the way that I wanted it to. I'm so grateful that nobody else has to experience this the same way that I have in this workplace. I'm so grateful that I feel powerful. All these things that weren't true yet, but practicing that gratitude anchored me in the outcome in being on the other side. And it gave me the motivation and the, the strength that I needed to be able to get through all of that. And you mentioned too that your so you said that your husband is Christian. I know we discussed a bit about the um, societal molds that you said you feel like you're you're bringing and just like your culture. And I know that you mentioned dancing, mm. and I'm just curious too how that has kind of tied in for you because the one thing that has really I don't want to say the one thing but something that has really stuck out to me about your story is when you said mm-hmm. your cousin didn't want you to call your mom <laughs> to let you know to let her know what was going yeah. on because she was with her dad and they'd know you guys were out at the club how yeah. 
how does that tie in with your healing now? Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so much there. I, so I have always been a little bit of a rebel. I'm not a rebel just to be a rebel. It's that, you know, being born a Brown Muslim woman in America, just on all sides there, there's this desire to control my actions or who I'm supposed to be in the world there. It just comes from all angles And I don't like that. I don't like being controlled. I feel like I have a direct connection with God. That's what I'm taught as a Muslim. Mm -hmm. I have a direct connection with God, which means I can tap into my own intuition. I can pray. I can use all of the tools that I'm given as a Muslim to be able to be guided to whatever's best for me and whatever's best for my family and my life. So yes, there were so many different things that I struggled with growing up. I have a deep passion for dance. That passion for dance was, was passed on to me from my mother. Like I mentioned, my mother's from East Africa Mm -hmm. and her, her grandmother and her mother taught her belly dancing and belly dancing when we're the way my mom grew up was all women getting together in these spaces where no men were allowed where you could tap into your sensuality, your sexuality. It's a way that women could get grounded in that, to love on their bodies, to celebrate with each other, where in a place where you couldn't necessarily do all of that outside of the home, right? Okay. So it was a safe space that women built for themselves and for each other. And there are jokes like older women would come and they would look at all these younger women dancing. And they would go home and tell their sons who to marry based on who was a good dancer, right? Like who's going to be good in bed. Yeah. But that's how my mom practiced it in, um, in East Africa. And when she came to the U.S. and she had us, we learned how to dance from day one, right? From when we could walk. I've been dancing my entire life. Mm-hmm. Belly dancing is so empowering. It is so beautiful and for me it's a very spiritual experience it's tapping into my body which is just as much of a blessing as anything else that God has given me mm-hmm. and we grew up going to belly dancing parties going to all women functions and there'd be women from all over the world some of them grew up belly dancing and some of them were just learning belly dance right because we're in the United States so different people will come from different places we have women from Saudi Arabia from Lebanon from Egypt and then you'd have you know women from Long Island, (laughs) wherever, who were just exploring what it meant to move your body in that kind of way and loving this environment. And I grew up with that. And as I grew up, I also realized that there were a lot of spaces outside of the home that gave me an opportunity to dance and have fun and listen to different kinds of music and just enjoy that fully. And I loved going out dancing. It was one of my favorite things to do. And it felt it felt aligned for me. And I loved teaching dance. I taught belly dance on my campus. And there were, there were times where I felt a disconnect, like I'm, I'm supposed to be modest. And I also love dancing. And I also was brought up with this passion for dancing. And in my family, it's, there's a little bit of everything, right? People dance at weddings. It's not all just women's faces, right? People are, it's a really, we have a really vibrant culture and it's really celebratory. It's not like most stereotypes that you hear about Muslim women, right? A lot of the, and 
not that the stereotypes are necessarily true about women who wear veils, right? Some people choose to wear, wear veils as a political statement or as a source of empowerment or, you know, everybody has a different reason to do what they choose to do. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I, I felt really grounded in needing to step out of what society expected me to do. It really bothered me that everybody had an opinion on the way that I danced, the way that I walked through this world, the way that I dressed, the way that, and I decided that that was going to be between me and God. And through this process of healing and recovering, I've learned to be more and more okay with that out loud. It used to be for me, honestly, mm. I'm just be really honest. It used to be, here's who I am in Muslim spaces and who here's who I am mm. in nighttime spaces and here's who I am in workplace spaces and here's who I am. And I'd have to be a different person. It was like being a chameleon in all these different spaces. And I'm, I've learned and I'm continuing to learn because I think it's a lifelong process. Right to be whole in every space that I walk into and recognizing that my acceptance of myself and my alignment with God is my own. And it doesn't have to be influenced by who's around me in any given space. My marriage to my husband was a huge controversy, huge. For a lot of people, if a Muslim woman marries a non-Muslim man, she can't be Muslim anymore. But I was in love. And he was in love and we couldn't, we've been married for 11 and a half years now. We couldn't imagine being with mm-hmm. anybody else in the world. I, I still can't wrap my head around the idea that God would want anything different for me. I feel like he was a gift from God for me. He feels the same way about me, but our families were both sides, you know, Christian side and Muslim side had a really, really hard time with the idea that we were getting married. And I, I decided as a Muslim woman to say, look, nobody else can tell me whether or not I'm Muslim. If I practice Islam, if that's my faith, then I'm Muslim. You know, I don't tell anybody else whether or not they're Muslim or Christian. They ha- that's between them and God. Right. And I feel like each person should be allowed their own, their own practice of faith and have the the power to be able to practice it in the way that they believe is best. I relate. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. I've heard of it. Yeah. I've heard a little bit. I don't know a lot about it, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, So I actually had a Enneagram guide on the podcast. So really, really interesting. Yeah. But I, so I am a number eight and that is all about, you know, you don't have this need to control other people, but you are so against people wanting to control you. So I'm relating to that because it's, you know, I do what you need to do, but don't make me feel like I have to do what you want me to do. And I, I'm fully aware of me being like that. And I can even vocalize to people, don't push this on me or don't push me in this direction because I'm going to start distancing myself or I'm going to get super defensive. Like, I just know that about myself already. And I mean, it it works for me that I'm able to communicate that with people, but I can completely relate to you in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a practice in setting boundaries. It's also a practice on the other, on the other side of it in building community, right? Because it's, Mm -hmm. it's look, I'm whole as I am. And that doesn't mean that everybody needs to go away who doesn't agree with everything with me, but it does mean that if you are in my community, that you love and accept me as I am, 
and that I'm open to growing, to expanding, to hearing new ideas. I mean, I love the Muslim communities that I'm a part of because they challenge me to think, huh, like maybe, maybe I can think differently about this, or maybe I do want to change. I'm ever evolving, you know? And I love that because that's what living in community is. It allows you to learn from everybody around you. It's a beautiful thing. So with that too, do you feel like I, I'm, I don't know if this is because of the trauma or if it's a personality trait, because I know that I can do that too. But you said that you yeah. had this need to like, please other people. Or when you called your dad and said, I'm okay, because yeah. you wanted to put him at ease. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I hear it all the time more now. I don't know if it's because, because I'm that way. So I feel like I'm kind of seeing it on Instagram more because it, it, it speaks yeah. to me. But when people say check on your strong friends. Yep. You know, oh, so my do, goodness. do you feel like that is was a part of the battle when it came to your, your, your shooting? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no question about it. That is one of my biggest things is your friends who are opening up great, be there for them. But the ones who are always helping other people check in with them more and it, they may resist it. And that's like, it doesn't mean push and climb in through their windows. <laughs> <Right>. It means <laughs> it just means be present, be loving and let them know that you're there and remind them that they can take up space. Mm-hmm. Because for me, I had, I was so wildly uncomfortable with taking up space. I was so uncomfortable with displeasing people in the same way that I said, like growing up a Muslim Brown Muslim girl in America, mm-hmm. we are taught, as women, we are taught as Muslim women, we are taught as brown women, we're taught all these different layers of your role is to please other people. Mm-hmm. In any, whether it's in bed, whether it's at work, whether it's in, in social relationships or friendships, your job is to be pleasing to other human yeah. beings. And I don't know if you get this. All, yeah. Yeah. And well, I don't know if you get this too, but like, but being, being Brown too, there's this stereotype of Brown women being exotic and like these, I don't even know how to describe it, but this expectation that you're going to somehow be for the, you're going to exist for the hunger of men. And it's, it's so frustrating sometimes because we deserve the right to be able to live in our own right and stand in our own power and not be our purpose is not for other human beings. It's not for their design. If we choose for it to be cool, but if we, <laughs> but if we don't, that's not, we're, we're not here for consumption. And I think yeah. it's really important to be able to stand in that and, um, and be able to say no, not just to, you know, the exotic aspects of things, but to be able to say no in terms of being of service to everybody all the time and to be able to own your own space. To me, that's ever evolving. You know, I still practice saying no. I think we always, I'm getting way better at it and I'm good at standing (laughs) in what I want and what I need. Yeah. Um, But it still is, you know, it's a, it's a dance. Like most things in life, you figure out a balance. I think too, right before we started recording, we were talking about our backgrounds, just like, you yeah. know, the, all the things we're mixed with. And I think that is something that also kind of plays a role because I heard that throughout college. Once someone actually, you know, caught wind of all the things I'm mixed with, it was, oh, she's so exotic. She's probably, right? you know, and it's like all these yeah. things. 
I could probably, I, I can't even think of the amount of times that was always the first thing I was asked, especially yeah. if I opened my mouth. There's certain words that I say that have a, a slight accent, you know, yeah. and as someone's talking to me, they just stop me. What are you? Yeah. I'm thinking like, I'm a, well, I'm a woman. Human. I'm a, you know, whatever junior and call whatever it is, but they're staring yeah. and they're like, what? will you some I noticed something different something is off about the way you're talking you know and I'm yeah. like did you hear yeah. anything I just said or are you just waiting to ask me that question oh my goodness I remember yeah. I had a co-worker one time who I said I don't know I said the word mountain or something and he was like say it again I said mountain he's like yep there it is I heard your accent and I was like what accent he goes where's your family from again I was like, well my mom is Swahili and he's like yep that like I don't even really speak Swahili. I speak some words, but I'm not. I definitely yeah. don't have a Swahili accent. It may be a right. Massachusetts accent because that's where I grew up. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You're looking for something you're not gonna find here. Right. Now. Yeah. Which, Which I doesn't mean, mean like. Yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna just say if you you know if you want to like learn about a culture or something or you're just curious, I, cool. But don't then say okay, well I picked up on this and therefore it means blah blah blah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's just it's funny because I I think it's important for me. It's really important to have pride in all of my different various you know <laughs> ethnicities. There are a lot of them, and I have my mom's side of the family has a very strong culture, and I I that's so much of that is how I grew up and what I'm passionate about, what I love about myself and about the way that I've, that I've existed in this world. So I celebrate that. And also, you know, it's not, you don't need to know every, my ethnicity in order to know how to interact with me as a human right. being, right? We can find that out, but you know. Yeah. Or, or your personality, just because you are a, B, C, and D doesn't mean that it's like, okay, she's this type of person. She could do this, All she could of do this with her body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that actually, that brings up a really good point that this is something that I also practice is just because I'm angry in this moment doesn't mean I'm an angry person. Just because I'm sad right now doesn't mean I'm a depressing person. We tend to like, we tend to, to stereotype or judge ourselves based on how we behave or who we think we are or who we think other people think we are. And it's so refreshing to allow ourselves to just be who and what and how we are in whatever moment yes. we're in, just to be present to that and yeah. accept it as it is. We are all very complex human beings and we don't have to sum ourselves up into one version of ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's like you're trying to make yourself so small. And I think that yeah. number one, two, um, it takes me back to when you said you did your speech in front of like 300 people and you had yeah. all these thoughts you were giving yourself that maybe no one or a very small amount of people actually thought, but you are bringing yourself down because you're, we, we talk bad to ourselves more than we yeah. would anyone else exactly. or in worse ways than anybody actually would. We're so hot, yes. you know, and yeah going back to that now thinking that we're making ourselves so small. And I remember right when all the things were going on with George, George Floyd, and yeah. I heard this man say black man. And he said, whenever, you know, whatever the type of work that he was doing, he was around officers. And he said that he always had, he just has a bubbly personality and he can be kind of loud. Mm -hmm. And it was a little intimidating for him. And he said, being around certain people, whether it's a, you know, a policeman, whoever it is, 
he always felt like he had to make himself smaller. I had, yeah. he said he had to bring his personality down because he wanted to make himself um, appear or not even appear, but be as little, as least intimidating as possible. Exactly. So I have to bring myself down and mold myself to make you, you feel more comfortable and make you feel happier because that's what you want from me. Yeah. And exactly. And BIPOC people, women, fill in, fill in the blank of whatever oppressed aspect you have to yourself, but we have to, we've been taught to, to make other people more comfortable, like make sure that the other person is more comfortable for black men on a whole other level. Make sure, because it's a matter of life and death, right? right. Make sure that the other human being is more comfortable Man, it that's it's something that I really struggle with, and I, I'll admit that I'm I continue to struggle with it. Is letting other people sit in their own discomfort when they've done something that is hurtful, or they've done something that's offensive, or done something whatever, and allowing myself to not try to make them feel better about it. To let people mm. sit in their own discomfort around it is really challenging for me because my whole life I've I've learned that. My purpose is to serve other people. My purpose is to make other people comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a powerful thing for us to be able to move outside of that. Yeah. And create those boundaries. I'm, I'm really digging into that lately myself. Yeah. 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 So do you feel like there were other instances throughout your healing or like immediately after you got shot that you were kind of putting more of that trauma on yourself because you were trying to please other people? Oh, absolutely. I I held everything all by myself. Well, this may blow your mind. So I met my husband a year after my shooting. And when I met my husband, I had just had surgery on my leg. I was still wearing, I was still um, using crutches. And so my shooting was really fresh when we met. Mm -hmm. We got married, like I mentioned, a couple of years later. It wasn't until seven years after my shooting that I opened up to my husband for the first time about what that experience was like for me. Oh, wow. If that tells you anything, like I, I had never opened up to anyone in my entire life, I guess. So I, mm. I had gone to a counselor because I had hit some kind of rock bottom. We had a, um, uh, an active shooting drill at my mm. new job. Okay. We had to hide under a desk and pretend that there was a shooter in the room. And I, I can't even tell you how traumatizing that was for me. I was brought right back onto the ground in the nightclub. Wait, so this and was the seven years? Then seven I, okay. years after my shooting. Yeah, okay. it was right after the Aurora, sh- the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting and Sandy Hook, the elementary school shooting. Yeah. And I had already, I, it was already fresh in my mind because there were so many mass shootings that year. And then that happened and I lost it. I became so depressed that I was having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. Mm. I was having a hard time. Like I wasn't present with my kids. I couldn't even listen to them talk. It was like I was in a fog all the time. So I went to a counselor and I was like, look, I have five sessions free with my job. I need you to tell me how to fix myself. And the first thing he (laughs) told me was, (laughs) see, I was like, I need to own this. But the first thing he told me, he asked me, have you ever told anyone your story? And at the time I was walking with a cane. And so I was like, everybody in my life knows that I've, that I was shot because I have, I don't have a cane. It's kind of obvious if anyone asks. Right. And he said, yeah, but I mean, have you ever told anybody 
from beginning to end, what happened that night, how you were feeling in each moment and how you've continued to feel since then. And I didn't know. So I called my parents. I called my best friend. I called my, um, I just asked everybody in my life, had I ever told you what happened? And they all said, well, no, you, you, we never thought you would want to talk about it because it was so traumatizing and you never asked or never brought it up. Mm -hmm. So we just assumed that you didn't want to. And so I had never told anyone for seven years. I hold held everything in every single thing about that shooting in, except for every once in a while, I would have, I would go to a conference or something and they ask the question that you asked, which is <laughs> tell me one thing that people don't really know about you. And I'd be like, well, I got shot with an assault rifle and everybody would go silent. Yeah. <laughs> so awkward and I was like no but it's fine it's I mean it was nothing you know it just happened a long time ago I'm totally good now but it was my attempt that was my little sad attempt at opening up at, at wishing that somebody would hear me and hold me and ask me about it yeah but it made everybody so uncomfortable and so I learned to just hold it in and when I finally opened up to my husband about it I was shaking I was crying and it was really it was healing for me. There was something about yeah. saying it out loud that was really mm -hmm. powerful for me. And, and that was just before I, I did the speech. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, and in that safe space too, because I'm sure he was there for you in those moments of up and down, you know, obviously knew you were shot, but didn't know the story. And then like I could imagine too, because as your husband, he's, he wants to protect you. You know, he wants to make sure that he can comfort you. He doesn't know all the details. So then being able to kind of have that inside now. So when you do have those triggers, he has a little bit more of the, of the background to know what, what happened. Yeah. But you know, what's so funny. He hates this story. And I was like, maybe I just won't tell this story on this podcast, but I'm going to tell it because I have to. <laughs> Sorry. Because, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but he actually that night I was like I just I the, the counselor told me I needed to talk about this and I, I would need to do it now because I just didn't feel like I could make it through another day I just didn't I felt like I was going to explode and he's like I'm really tired you know can we do it tomorrow I just am exhausted from work and I was like no 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 just let me you don't have to do anything you just have to sit there and listen so I started sharing and I started opening up and I was shaking. I was crying. I was going through saying things I had never said before. Mm -hmm. And I looked over and my husband had fallen asleep. <laughs> he was out cold oh, in the middle no. of me. I can't believe you did that. You were supposed to be there for me. He was like, I'm so sorry. I'm Wait, sorry. was this like... You look over, saw he was asleep and you woke him up or was this next morning you were like, well, you fell asleep. Oh, no. He was snoring. Okay. First he started <laughs> snoring. So I woke him up. I was like, we were downstairs on the couch. It wasn't like he was in bed. I was like, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be holding me through all this. And the funny thing is that even though he fell asleep and he, he, he just was not in a place to be able to be there for me in the way yeah. that I needed I, it still helped me still saying it out loud, even say, cause I had never even said it out loud to myself, like mm -hmm. saying it out loud. Yeah. It made me feel, I didn't get over the judgment until I said it publicly with that, that big group. So after that, I didn't, I hadn't overcome any of that judgment because he fell asleep. Right. So I was yeah. like, all right. I yeah. But I 
did it I did work through the the fear of what would happen if I let myself go back there and actually go mm-hmm. into that and having that counselor tell me that sharing my story would be therapeutic for me was really important because it helped it helped inspire me to actually do it when I was asked to by Rhonda and mm-hmm. I also learned a really important lesson and everybody out there who's thinking about sharing their story for the first time no matter how big or small it is this is really important is that when you're about to share your story and it's going to be a waterfall it's going to be that that erupting of stuff that you've been holding in for a long time or really when you're opening up about anything you haven't opened up to before mm-hmm. check with the person first and make sure they have the capacity to hold space for you i learned after that to say, hey, do you have an hour? Do you have 10 minutes? Do you have 30 minutes of time to just listen? I don't need advice. I don't need you to help me or fix me. I just need somebody to listen. And at the end, you can just give me a hug or you can just say, thank you so much for sharing. I really don't need anything. Cause we, people feel the need to fix you or do something. But most of the time, you just need somebody to hold space so that you can come to the other side of it yourself. If you want advice, you can ask for that. But a lot of times, that's it. Yeah. My mom is like that, where she needs to fix. Fix. And we have butted heads because there's times where same thing, you know, I'm like, I just need you to listen because then she's like all these things. Well, did you try this? And I'm like, I tried it like you know and I get it she's my mom so of course she doesn't want you to hurt but like you said too when you're even when you're talking to your little kids you know there's a moment where you kind of have to let them feel that thing because if you're telling them oh no you're fine and distract them and move on then they're not they're not dealing with what happened so sometimes you know we butt heads and I'm just you know I just need you to listen like you can't make me not feel pain ever yeah. So right now I'm in this painful place and I just want someone to hear, but I get it. It's like that, that yes, like, let me be in pain. Solve. Yeah. I know. Let yeah. me be in pain. Damn it. I need to sit in this. <laughs> but and I'm it's sure. Funny. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go, go. I was going to say, and I'm sure once you actually talked to your husband, once he was wide awake, it was probably better. Right. Cause he's like, I can give you all my full energy versus what if he didn't fall asleep and he was just there, you know, maybe one eye open and you're like, answer me. At least now he's like, I can give you the proper responses. Yes. And now I know how to check in with him first and make sure. <laughs> and the thing is, I also used to feel like, look, I had my best friend in college and she was my person. And when we left college, she moved to the East coast And I didn't have her there for me anymore. And I didn't know how to talk to anybody else. I felt like there was nobody else that got me the way that she got me. Mm -hmm. So I felt like without my person, I didn't have anyone to open up to. The truth was that I didn't know how to open up and teach other people to to react in the way that I needed, which is, look, when I'm going, when I, I need to open up about this and I just need a listening ear, I just need compassion. That's all I need right now yeah. and then you know they, we we make things so much more complicated by trying to fix people because fixing people <laughs> is way harder than just holding space just sitting yeah. in the uncomfortable silence giving them permission to open up about all of it sometimes when we try to fix them we're telling them that they're broken we're like "Ooh, you're making me uncomfortable right now with your brokenness I need <laughs> you to put it back together 
Yeah, right. Here's some glue. I just need you to do that real quick. Right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. don't heal this. Don't open up. Don't do all that. Just like close the door. And I'm sure you also know this too, but at the end of the day, no one's, you know, suggestions or whatever it is, is really going to like change much. The the ultimate healing or fixing is going to come from you. Exactly. Always, always, always does at the end of the day, because even if what you feel like you need to do is tell them what they need to do at the end of the day, if they open up fully about what's hurting them and they feel all of that pain come up, they are going to reach out for help. Maybe they won't ask you. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll ask somebody else. Maybe they'll go to a professional. Maybe they'll like once they're ready to start asking for advice, then people will start asking for advice. And once you're ready to start asking for advice, seek out that advice, man. There are so many intelligent, powerful, wonderful human beings who will carry you through everything that you need to go through. But sometimes you just have to start with figuring out what it is about opening up about the thing that you've been hiding from and seeing what happens when you unravel it. Yeah, I have certain friends that, you know, maybe they're, I, you know, you just know you have certain friends, either they're that type of person where it's like, let me figure it out. Or maybe you're yeah. that person to them for, you know, I have some friends where I, I treat them as you're, you're my friend that's here for like listening to me. And then I yeah. might have this other friend that I want to go to for the advice or maybe vice versa based on the situation. So sometimes when I have a friend telling me a story, I kind of fill it out. And if there's like this awkward silence, I say, I have an idea. Can I share it? Or wait, did you want my opinion on this? Or did you want me to just listen? Cause yeah. I'm cool with that too. <laughs> right. Yeah. That check-in is whatever so they important. need. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I think, I mean, we, all of us or a lot of us have a hard time with, with taking up space because we're taught that strength is holding everything in and that weakness is letting everything out. When the truth is, it's really the opposite. If you have the strength to be vulnerable, you are more powerful, you're more influential, you're more inspirational, all of those things. And it oftentimes it starts with you taking up enough space to be able to get to the other side of whatever you're going through And then you will have the capacity to hold space for that same person because that friend who's always good at listening probably needs somebody to listen to them because they're probably one of those strong friends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Definitely. Everyone go check on your strong friends. Yeah. Yes. For real. So I want to ask you too. So we talked a little bit about your husband too, but also your boys. How has your, how have your boys, I mean, your husband as well, but how has your family helped you when you have triggers, um, just the healing process? How have they helped you in that way? Oh, my babies are so phenomenal. I'll be honest. So I raised them with my extreme kind of scared of everything. You don't go outside without, you know, looking both ways. I used to say the, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. I used to say things that were over the top like if you go in the street you're gonna get hit by a car and they'd be like no I'm really fast no you don't understand you'll get hit by a car and you'll die like I needed them to know the fear I needed them to feel the fear because I felt like that was the only thing that would keep them safe because it felt like the only thing that would keep me safe and once I started going through this healing process and started realizing that actually facing and overcoming my fears is what made me feel actually safe. It's not hiding from them. Hiding from them never made me feel safe. It just made me feel small. 
but facing them and overcoming them head on made me feel powerful. It made me feel like I could overcome anything. And my kids started to, I, I decided that I wanted them to see and experience my, my path to healing. I wanted them to see me try to do things and fail. I wanted them to see me try to do things and pick myself back up and try again. I wanted them to see me try to do things and be genuinely scared, be shaking, be crying, be whatever it is. Cause we block children out from those things. And they, some, then they start learning that, oh, strong people are like my parents who never cry, who never struggle, who never mm-hmm. fail, who always know and who always do things right. Yeah. And I wanted them to see that, look, we all struggle, we all fail. And that's what makes us stronger is when we fail and we pick ourselves back up. And as I was going through my own process of learning that my kids were doing the same thing. So my oldest, who is terrified of heights, he got the biggest brunt of my of my fear mongering. He started facing his fears. He started becoming stronger. He started, he did rock climbing. He went on a zip line. He started doing all these things that terrified him. I have photos of him and he's like shaking. He's so scared, but he did it. And he felt so good and so powerful afterwards. How old are your boys? My kids, so they're 11, eight and almost five. Okay. So they are they're facing fears every single day. My 11 year old, I think it was like a year, maybe two years ago. He said he had an assignment in school about who do you want to be like when you grow up? And he said, when I grow up, I want to be like my mommy because she follows her dreams. I know. I know you cried. I'm like, I feel a tear already. (laughs) It meant so much to me because I have worked really hard. I have stepped out and done things that felt impossible I have pursued my dreams I've done things that that I would have never imagined doing when I was struggling and when I was hiding and now I I'll go if I'm having a hard time in life at any point I write a list of all of the things that I'm hiding from I write a list of all the things that scare me because if I'm having a hard time it's probably because I'm hiding from something I write a list of all the things that scare me and I just pick one of them and I do that And if I do that, if I can do that and face that fear and stop hiding, I feel so expanded. I feel so liberated. I feel so much better on the other side of that. And if you do that, if you just write lists of things that you're hiding from and start facing them one by one, my goodness, you'll find yourself so far down the road. You'll be like, I can't even believe that that this wasn't even a possibility in my life before. So that's been really powerful. Yeah. I just, I just made note of that too. Cause I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah that's good. You and know, my kids doing it is, inspires me. Like it's my own little community yeah. of all of us challenging each other to do yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's really good too. Like you said that you're, you're teaching them that, you know, everyone has their struggles and that he sees, okay, you're overcoming these fears because it just, it kind of trickles down. Obviously when you're a kid, you know, you kind of want to see that your parents are, to some degree, like, you know, untouchable because, okay, maybe they can like help me figure this thing out because you want to know that you can go to them for some advice or like to kind of help you. But at the same time, as you get older, I think about, you know, people that are having their first kid and a lot of moms, first time moms are thinking, 
you know, I'm just, I'm just winging it. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, and I'm not ready. Like, aren't we all just winging it? You know, but we all makes, are. Yeah. It also makes you think too. Okay. If you know, your mom had some struggles or your parents had some struggles while they were learning how to be parents, that helps you too. You won't think, well, my parents had no issues. They, they were perfect parents. They had no problems. Now, you know, exactly. you had this struggle. Let me go to you and talk to you about this because we, we can relate in that way. Exactly. And whenever you're vulnerable with somebody, it opens up a connection in your relationship with them. It makes the relationship, it just makes the relationship closer and opening up. I'm not, it's not like I'm going into my kids' rooms and being like, I'm just having a hard to hold me. But my kids, (laughs) but my kids will walk in. I remember one time my son, my oldest again, walked in and I was praying. and, And when I finished praying, I was, I had been crying and he was like, what's wrong, mommy? I was like, I just feel like a failure. You know, I had launched this program and I didn't get as many people on the program as I thought I was going to have. And I just, I feel like giving up. And he looked at me and he said the same thing that I had told him. (laughs) He was like, he was like, mommy, never give up on your dreams. It's like, if you didn't get it this time, you learned from it and just try again. I was like, oh, that's what I needed to hear. And it made it so that he felt more, he didn't feel like he needed to be hard and strong when he Mm -hmm. faced his own failures. You know, he wanted to, he was trying out for a soccer team and he really wanted to make it and he didn't make it the first time. And his instinct, because he's a perfectionist, he likes to do everything really well, right? His instinct was to just be like, well, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I'll do something else. I'm just going to, but he came to me and he let himself be vulnerable. And he was like, I really feel like, I feel like I'm not good enough. Like, I feel like they didn't pick me because of this. And we talked through it. And at the end he was ready to, to dust himself off and try again. So it's, I don't know. It's made me, it's made my relationship with my kids much closer. And I love it like that that's how I prefer it instead of this kind of distant power dynamic. Yeah. He's, you know, he's learning that young too, that a lot of, you know, adults don't learn because a common misconception, I think with people that are perfectionists, I, I know I'm the same way where you might never actually complete something. People are thinking perfectionists they are doing all these things. And it's like, yeah. no, actually, when you're a perfectionist, you don't want to actually put anything out or actually feel like you're finished because you, you need it to be perfect and nothing can be perfect. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Podcast. I'm like, I can never put it out. It's not perfect enough. Yeah. But you, and you talk about like, re- I remember you said something earlier about reaching out to a friend and saying like, oh my goodness, I, I like your friend supporting you in that. Yeah. But I think that's, that's the vulnerability that allows you to then have the support you need in order to get past that. Right. Right. So if you, you can be as perfectionist as you want to be, or as you need to be, as long as you have somebody in your life, who's going to be like, all right, it's time. Come on. Yeah. Get back up let's do this again. It's going to, it's going to be good. Or you know what? It's already good as it is. Leave it, leave it alone. Put it out Mm -hmm. there. It's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. So that's important. And vulnerability is what builds community. We cannot survive without community. We are social human beings at our core. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I think this whole pandemic situation right now. It's been so hard. Yeah. So we need, Yeah. yeah. And we're forced to be purposeful about it. We can't just like pass people in the grocery store and do what we can't just say, Oh, I'm just too busy for everything. I can't, 
we are forced to look at ourselves, look at our fears, look at our past traumas, look at our relationships and be really purposeful about them because we need each other right now. Yeah. So if you need a friend, you have to reach out and be like, Hey, I'm struggling. Do you have 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, not a time where you're going to, you know, have to answer a phone call or fall asleep in the middle of it. Right. But <laughs> yeah, but really be able to connect. I also want to know too. So you had mentioned that your, all, all the tools that you used from healing that you, yeah. that kind of helps you when you have triggers. Right. So yeah. did you have any, I mean, we know what mental health is, but did you have like a concept of, of like before your shooting of taking care of your mental health? Was that even the thing that you did before that? Oh my goodness. No. <laughs> if the audience can see this face you're making, right now, I know. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> I just had no idea. To me, it was stuff happens and you get over it and you move on because that's, I don't know if that's what was, I, I don't know if that's what I just internalized from my environment around me. I don't know if it's, it's, it's American culture in a lot of ways, right? We praise For the sure. people who suck it up and move on. And so I thought, I mean, I had tons of things that I had experienced growing up as a Muslim in a, as a Muslim in America after 9-11, we got death threats. I got threats. I was called subhuman. My, I was called a terrorist, whore, sand nigger, all these really horrible things. And I went through all of this and I was scared for my life for a while, but then I never dealt with any of it. I never worked through any of it and actually felt it even in this past year during mm-hmm. all of the, um, the black lives matters, the black lives matter movement mm-hmm. and all of the, it's like a combination, right? All the shootings are triggering shooting things for me. Mm-hmm. And all of the racism is triggering so much for me from right. growing up. And when you suck it up, and you think that you can just get over it, you know, all of that mental health stuff felt just, it felt weak. It felt out there and like, oh, you need to see a therapist. Must be something wrong with you. You know, Mm -hmm. I just had all these judgments about it. I wasn't even really conscious about it. I didn't know trauma was not a word that I really knew or understood. PTSD wasn't a concept that I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. My sister told me, cause she's a, um, she's a counselor for mer- people who are active Marines in the military. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she, when I was talking to her on the phone one time, she's like, I really think you have PTSD. You should see somebody and see if you can get help with that. I was like, what's PTSD? I think it was called PTSS at the time or something, post-traumatic stress syndrome. I don't know, but I had no concept of those things. Mm-hmm. And even when I did, I still undermined my experience and told myself what you went through is not big enough. You're not in the military. You're not getting shot at all the time. You're living your everyday life. You're fine. Get over it. So even still, I had all those judgments about myself. And I find people all the time, people write to me and tell me that they've had these experiences that they just don't feel like are as bad, you know, And every time they tell it to me, look, if it feels like it's bad, it's bad. You deserve the help that you need. It's it's worth reaching out for help. And when you say it out loud to somebody else and recognize that they actually are hearing you with compassion, then you realize, 
man, I've been holding this in this whole time. I didn't have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought getting shot wasn't very bad. I was like, well, that's really nothing. Yeah. You know? It's like, if you think that's not bad, then your parents getting divorced, you might be like, well, everybody's parents get divorced or losing a family member or, you know, or feeling like, you might have COVID or whatever it is that you're going through. If you're having a hard time with it, you deserve support. Yeah. It doesn't matter how big or small or how you judge it as big or small, because we just can't compare things like that. Yeah. I think um, something I learned from my sister too, is, you know, if you say I also was, uh, you know, I, I was mm-hmm. shot in the arm you know, and then I tell you, oh, well, I, I understand exactly what you're going through because I had this, you know, and Mm -hmm. yes, it is, like you said, opening up creates that connection, but I, just because I had this trauma doesn't mean that I understand exactly where you're coming from. So I can tell you to relate to you and connect to you, but that doesn't mean that I'm like, oh, like, you know, you don't have to go on with the story. I got it. I already had the same kind of thing because how something may affect you is different from how it's going to affect me. And even if I had a situation, like you said, everyone's parents get divorced, you know, maybe someone's cool with that. Maybe they saw that the whole time and somebody else is really affected. We're all messed up in some way, you know, we all have our things. And if we are only um, focusing or trying to fix the ones that society thinks are actual issues, yeah, exactly big enough, we're not going to grow because it's not about what this friend or, you know, this supervisor, this person over here or social media follow or something thinks is big enough is if it's affecting you address it because otherwise where where do we go from there? Right. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Yes. And (laughs) the people who react that the people who are dismissive, I mean, it can be a couple of things. One, it could be that they're really uncomfortable with the conversation, but usually it's, it's because they haven't, allowed themselves compassion for what they've gone through. They haven't healed that. It's still a big pain. So they have to put up this wall because they're scared of what might happen if they actually let themselves feel it. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's something that I've, I've actively practiced is whenever I have a judgment about somebody else's experience, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter what the judgment is. Even if the judgment is like, I don't know, on somebody else's body, like, oh, her boobs are, are too big or sort of that is a reflection of how I feel about myself. That's a reflection of the judgments mm-hmm. I have on myself. Projecting. If I'm, yeah. yeah. If I'm judging somebody for being too something, it's probably because I don't feel comfortable with that aspect of myself. I don't feel all the way free. I don't feel allowed. I haven't healed whatever has told me that that's not okay. So if you have that, if you find yourself, look, we all have that. We all judge someone sometime at some point. The important thing is to recognize it as a judgment on yourself, not a judgment on, that has nothing to do with them. They can keep living their lives the way they live their lives, but I need to address this judgment in myself because A, it's about me and B, it's impacting me. If I'm spending all my life walking around judging other people, it's putting me in a really negative place and it's probably putting me in a, more negative plays about myself. And so I need to, I need to address that and give myself compassion in whatever area that is. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned, I don't know if this is the same one, but you mentioned Rhonda. Yeah. So is this the same survivor that you said kind of got you to even just open up? Yeah. 
Okay. Yep. Can, what's, what's your relationship with her now? Rhonda is absolutely incredible. And actually I owe her a phone call because, <laughs> because she's <laughs> called me recently and I need to call her back, but she is, Rhonda is like a, a mentor and a, somebody, she's just so compassionate in that she, if, I, if there's a shooting that happens, she'll call me and check in with me to see how I'm doing about it. Mm. She, we've gone to marches together, um, gun violence prevention marches, like the March for Our Lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I'm just so inspired by her and the work that she does and how she lives her life. Yeah. She is really incredible. And I'm so grateful for her every day. And she, that one gift that she gave me at the very beginning, when she gave me permission to open up and open up in a really big space and told me that I was a survivor for the first time, mm-hmm. it's as priceless, right? I don't, I don't know where I am or who I am without that, if that hadn't happened. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> Do you know we need each other guys? And can I, I want to reiterate that that's because she was brave enough to share her story. It wasn't because she was going out trying to help people. That's not how I found, I found her because she was brave enough to share her story. And that had that big of an impact on me. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, great. That's great. Uh, I was going to ask you if you, if you have any like mantras that you, you know, live by that kind of help you keep grounded, help you you know, center yourself when you have triggers, just anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. they change. So I, so there are a couple of things, I have a couple of practices that I do. And one of them is that I, I plug my phone in downstairs every night before I go upstairs mm-hmm. and go to sleep. And for the past four months, I've been waking up at 530 in the morning to write. And I'm really proud of myself for continuing that because I'm not a morning person. Okay. But <laughs> I plug in my phone downstairs and I come upstairs and I write in my journal every night. And as I'm writing in my journal, I write the one thing that's consistent is I write three things that I'm grateful for every day. Doesn't matter how bad my day <sighs> is or how I have to. I write three things. That I I'm do that for. every night. Yeah. I was doing it on my own and then I was telling my mom about something. And then so now we've got it. And you know how you can have those, um, I, don't, I forgot what it's called, like the shortcuts on your phone where you can like send out a text. Yeah. Yeah. So I have that. It just like sends to my mom. She'll respond and then that's I'll respond. Awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. So helpful. Oh, that's amazing. I, to me, gratitude, I learned about gratitude way too late in my life, but I'm so excited now that I've had it. I think. A couple of years ago, I started a gratitude practice. And be- prior to that, I thought gratitude was just for people who had really great lives. Like, of course, you're grateful. You didn't have to get shot. <laughs> but, but I realized as I started practicing it, I realized that what gratitude did for me was it anchored me in the good parts of my life, no matter how hard things got. Mm-hmm. And it continues to do that. And so part of it is I do gratitude, three, three, at least three things I'm grateful for every day. But I also ask myself, what do I need? So it's really important to me to ask myself what I need. And sometimes I develop mantras from that, right? Like a couple of my mantras for this year, I have them over here on my, on my um, vision board. But one of them is today I will use my life to make a difference. So that's one that I really like. Yeah. Another one is today I will choose courage over comfort. That's a Brene Brown quote. Yeah, I was like, it sounds familiar. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. And one that's recent for me, because this year for me was all about abundance and calling in anything that I want for my life. Call it, I've had more time than I've ever than I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. I've had money coming in. I've had all of the things that I've ever asked for and wanted. And so one of my mantras now that I'm practicing, because I'm, I had to do a lot of work to open myself up to being worthy of all those things. When I started this, I didn't even feel worthy of life. I felt like I was, I should have died. Mm-hmm. And now I'm opening myself up to being worthy of everything that I want in life. So one of the mantras that I practice is reminding myself that when I want something, I can call it in and it will happen. Okay. So whatever I want becomes inevitable. Mm-hmm. And that's really important for me because if what I want is a guide, then I'm, I'm calling in a guide. If what I want is, I don't know, a new car, then I'm calling in a new car. Yeah. What I want is to help other people and I'm calling that in. Mm-hmm. And that's been really empowering for me. If you are enjoying this conversation with Nirjahan just as much as I did, please stay tuned for part two of this conversation. It's dropping next Wednesday, February 10th. Stay tuned.